You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. And I really hope, I really hope everyone in this room believed what we just sang. Oh, it's amazing to know that you've been justified in Christ and forgiven. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1, and I, I think that Hebrews, a, a good summary statement for the book of Hebrews is the one we've given for the series, is looking to Jesus. It's a perfect summary of the book of Hebrews, and I think of the Christian life, that whatever you are facing in your life this morning, you are to look to Christ. Whatever is tempting you in your heart and in your mind and burdening you, to look to Christ and whatever is really scaring you in your life, what is making you panic and worry, the writer of Hebrews keeps calling us to look to Jesus, the sure and steady anchor of our soul. And today he reminds us of who Jesus is and his ministry and why it matters and really where Jesus is right now, this moment, really matters to your entire life. And so as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word and we'll begin in chapter one, I'm sorry, verse one of chapter eight. Verse one, chapter eight, and the the Holy Spirit tells us. Now, the point and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as as the old covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. You know our weaknesses. You know our even inability to 
sit undistracted with your word open. So help us now, Lord. Would you send the Holy Spirit to stir among us and to captivate our hearts and our minds to your word. Help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray, amen. There's really one thing I I think in our lives that happens every single week, and it's kind of scary if you think about it. And every single one of us, this happens at some point. Some of you, it probably happens more often than you care to let on, but we'll see. You're driving to work, you're going to the store, and after about 10 to 15 minutes in, you're sitting there and you think, how did I get here? I've been listening to sports radio, I've been listening to music, I Did I run lights? I have no idea how I even got here. That's scary and amazing at the same time. That you can go on autopilot, you can cruise and not pay attention, and you just kind of get there. I mean, we're guiding this thousand pound hunk of metal down the road like it's no big deal. Hebrews 8 steps in and says, you need to pay attention to your life, your reality, and pay attention to what it means to be a Christian. Because it is far too easy to go about our lives, just keep going. Okay, Sunday church, uh, school, college, kids, work, kids baseball, small group, dinner, Netflix, group, yada, yada, and on, on, on. And here we are again on Sunday. But how, how do our lives actually look different, feel different? worship differently than the world around us because we are citizens of heaven. We are new covenant people. And Hebrews 8 reminds us that this new covenant life we are in, it is now really the kind of superstructure of our lives. And and the phrase new covenant or even the phrase covenant, it's, it's not one that we 21st century Christians, especially American Christians, that we ever use. And we really never even talk about it that much in the church. Really only two times, I think, that we frequently talk about covenant. It's when someone's about to get married and we tell them about this great covenant. And then when someone's about to get divorced and we tell them, don't ruin this covenant. Don't, don't do what you're about to do. These are really like the only times we mention these words. So what does it really mean? It's not a common word, but it is a common practice. It happens every day in your life. Covenant means agreement. It, it means a binding promise. And so sometimes you hear Christianity described as, um, especially if you're not a Christian today, you may have heard people tell you about, hey, you can come and you can get a relationship with God. You can have a relationship with God. And, and that's true. But sometimes I think a new generation of people, when they hear that word, you can, have a, you can have a relationship with God. We need to explain that better because people hear that and they think, what do you think about relationships? You think, oh, are y'all in a relationship? You think romantic physical relationship, kind of dating, that, that's not probably the best way to describe what it means to be a Christian. We can talk about being in God's family, being welcomed into God's kingdom, having God as our father. And here the writer of Hebrews says, he wants to remind us of this one dynamic and really the, the big one, reminds us that we have an agreement with God, a covenant with God, a binding promise, not from us to God, a lot of times people think, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm promising this to God. We don't make promises to God. 
that last. God makes promises to us that last. That's why the Promise Keepers movement is really not around that much today. If you're familiar with this men's movement that happened a couple of decades ago, it was all about men making promises to God. Of course, it fell apart because our promises to God fall apart. That's why it's not around. But God's promises to us in this new covenant last. Beloved, simply, Christianity is believing and it is living in God's terms, God's agreement offered to us in the old, rugged, blood-stained cross. And it's living and believing on God's terms offered to us in that empty tomb in Jerusalem and believing and living on God's terms offered to us in a resurrected, reigning King Jesus. This is what it means to live in the new covenant. And if you are a Christian, you are a new covenant person. And that's what he tells us today. So what does it look like? Well, it really begins here. It begins with Jesus above all others. Look at verse one, chapter eight. Verse one. He's been talking about the high priest all the way back in chapter four. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. And he goes on for these the rest of these chapters talking about the high priest. And now he says in 8.1, now the point and what we are saying is this. Now you gotta love verses like that in the Bible. Sometimes the Bible can be, okay, it takes a lot of work to understand what this verse is saying, but here, man, that's clear. The point of what I'm saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So after all of these chapters of talking about the high priest and comparing Jesus as our high priest and all the other priests in Judaism. Now he says, this is the point of it. And if you've been with us throughout the series, why does he keep talking and comparing these things? Because these Hebrew Christians are tinkering with the idea of going back to Judaism because it's protected by Roman law. They won't get persecuted. It won't be hard for them. And he's going to say later in the book, some of you have had your stuff stolen. You've had, you've had your houses raided because you're a Christian. So these people, some of them are thinking, let's just go back. It's protected by Rome. Hey, it's close enough. I mean, we're not going to go worship Zeus, but we're still going to, you know, hear about our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're still going to worship God. And, you know, yeah, Jesus won't be there, but hey, it's, it's close enough. It's not like we're going to go worship Artemis. Do you see what the danger is for these Hebrew Christians? It, it's your danger and my danger too. It's not Zeus. It's not Artemis. It's not even Caesar. The greatest danger these Hebrew Christians are facing is the danger of a close enough Christianity. And that's the biggest danger for people in this room. Your biggest threat is not Islam. It's not you turning to go worship Allah. It's not you going into Buddhism. Those are not the biggest threats to us. The biggest danger in our lives, in your life, would to live, to be to live in almost Christianity, a, a kind of Christianity, a, a close enough Christianity, which is not Christianity. A kind of Christianity wants to shave off the culturally controversial parts of Scripture. Maybe even personally believing them, but publicly denying them. A close enough Christianity doesn't pick up their cross every day, but only one day a week. On Sunday, 
I'll die to my desire to sleep in and my desire to skip church and go do more fun things, but I'll do the spiritual thing and come to church. Show up, barely sing or not sing at all. Don't even bring a Bible. Don't even read the text when I say, let's turn here. Like, eh, whatever. Doesn't really follow along. Maybe gives a little cash when the, when the baskets come by, just whatever's on them, but heart not prepared, not planned out, not decided on. And they feel good about their display of religion today. And then they go home, go back to their addictions, back to their hidden sins, and ignore Jesus all week, and then repeat it all again on Sunday. A close enough Christianity is far from the kingdom of God. Real Christianity, new covenant living, believes and lives with this reality in mind of verse one, that we have... Do you have this, a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, that the reason we sing, the reason we give, the reason we pray, the reason we repent of our sins, that we love and forgive and evangelize is because I don't believe Jesus is a pile of bone dust somewhere in Jerusalem, but I believe he is reigning and ruling over the heavens. That's why we do what we do. That's why we live how we live. That's why we sacrifice how we sacrifice, because Christ is reigning. Do you believe that? Your life shows if you believe it or not. You may know, oh yeah, the Bible says Jesus is alive, but does your life display that Jesus is alive? Because the gospel goes down into the granules of our lives and it's changing our emotions, changing our actions, changing the way we drive, changing the way, I mean, do you ever notice how when, when people don't let you in in traffic, you're like, oh, man. And then you need to let somebody in. And we're like, well, man, I'm, I can't let you in. I, I'm going to be late. Why? B- because we, we're so ingrained into selfishness. But eventually you're just like, ah, whatever, come in. Ah, whatever, come in. Because even the gospel compels you for that. Do you see Jesus as your risen, sitting in heaven Savior? It's important to even know that he's sitting. Why does, it, why does it matter that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven? Well, the priesthood is a busy job. If, if you've ever worked in a service industry or a coffee shop, a restaurant, fast food, you don't sit. Ever. That's why you get those really ugly but comfortable shoes. <laughs> because, man, you get, you're standing at a long time. It's constant motion. Same in the priesthood. It is constant motion. You never sit down. The only time in those fast food industries when you're sitting down is either you're done or you're on a break. Jesus is sitting in heaven. Not because he's on a break. Not because he's off the clock. But because the sacrificial work for your sins is done. Because your sins have been paid for. He doesn't need to be carrying basins of blood and carting around lamb carcasses and sprinkling on the altar. When it comes to your sins being paid for, if you believe in Jesus, it was finished on the cross. His bloodshed, his life, when it ended on that hill, it was finished. Your sins were finished. The guilt for your sins was finished. Your slavery to sin is finished. But he wasn't finished. 
he rose again and he's alive in the heavens. I mean, how often do you think that right now Jesus is alive and the resurrection of Christ is meant to be an everyday motivator in your life? That would I do this or would I do this? Since Jesus is alive, how will I live? Since Jesus is my risen and reigning Lord, will I continue to panic? Will I continue to give in to anxiety? Or since Jesus is my risen and reigning Lord, will I trust? Since Jesus is alive for me in the heavenly places, will I continue in this hidden sin? No. You see how Christ seated in the heavens for us changes our lives as new covenant people. So what do you think Jesus is doing right now? This is one of the most important questions we could ever ask someone. What do you think Jesus is doing right now? How you answer that question shows a lot about you. In some ways, it'll show whether or not you're a Christian. If you think he's dead, but if you think he's alive, you're a new covenant person. And he's alive doing what, verse two? He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus is our minister. He's serving us. He's our priest. He's our shepherd. He's our pastor. He's our brother. And he's our Lord in where? Serving in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's reminding us of the tabernacle, this kind of portable temple the Israelites used for sacrifices that God gave them in the wilderness wanderings. And he tells them, look, Jesus is serving in the true tent that God made, not man. It's not that the tabernacle was false. It means it was just a shadow. It wasn't the ultimate tent. Verse five, these things serve what? As a copy, as a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is from the book of Exodus when God is giving Moses all these instructions on how to set up the temple. I just read this in my Bible reading plan. Amazing, it's it's lining up. We can read that and go, okay, okay. You want the curtains to be this long and this tall and you want this kind of gold-plated table. We got it. But here, the writer of Hebrews is showing us, here's why this matters. Why was Moses making it that way? Verse five, the serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For, here's why, when Moses was about to build it all and God told him, see that you do it just like I told you. Because what Moses is making is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why God says, I want it just like this, I want it just like this, just like this. He is making a replica a model of the kind of temple that is there in the heavenly places. God went to all this detail for all these architectural plans so he could show the people that, look, a, a little bit of heaven is touching down on earth, but, but you need more. This is not enough to save you. Because look at verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, superior than the old covenant. Because this one that he mediates, this agreement that Jesus is over is better. It's enacted on better promises. So Jesus' ministry and is better than the temple. It's better than those priests who served in it. Jesus is over a better one. That was served as a shadow of the cross. 
and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I, I love these words, shadow and copy, and I think we really got to think about them. Shadow and copy, they're great, great words. Everyone knows what a shadow is. Hopefully everyone in this room knows what a shadow is. You see it after a bright light shines on you, and you see, the okay, where the light's not going, okay, there's a shadow, great. And you see your hand on a wall, and you go, hey, there's my hand. Hey, Oliver, my son, he's three, he's obsessed with his shadow right now. He walks around, hey, there's my shadow. And he's like walking around behind it. We get in the truck, hey, where'd my shadow go? You know, he's just like, where's this thing? And he knows it's his. When you, when you are going to leave today and you see your, your figure, your shadow walking, you're not going to be like, oh man, that's scary. I thought of someone else. No, it's my shadow. <laughs> you know that's yours. But has anyone ever talked to your shadow thinking it was you? I mean, imagine you're standing outside today, and we'll call it our outdoor foyer, which is really nice out here. And instead of talking to you, your buddy walks up and he goes into the catcher stance and he goes down and he starts talking to your shadow. Hey, Brad, how are you, man? I missed you this week. Like, hey, man, I'm up here. Whoa, I thought that was you. You and your shadow look so much alike. Oh, man, I couldn't believe it. That was spooky. You would tell, we need to take you to the doctor. I mean, you're, something's wrong with you. That would never happen. No one would ever confuse the two. I mean, people that are married in this room, you didn't, you didn't marry the person you married because of their shadow. Like, oh, she's got a great shadow. I mean, best shadow I've ever seen. Fabulous shadow. That would never happen. And sometimes her shadow's a little tall, but you know, I get over that. No, you married the person, the real thing. So he is saying the old covenant and all of its fixings and all of its trappings, it is all traceable, just like you can trace a shadow to the source. And it's all traceable back to the new covenant, to Christ, to his cross, to his resurrection, to his blood, to him reigning from heaven. It's just a copy. Right, so you got to hang with me here and, and see the words copy and shadow and, and how, how they work. He wants them to see a connection. So if the temple and the tabernacle and all of that gear as a shadow of the heavenly temple. Okay, so you got to see that connection. If the temple tabernacle, these are all a shadow of what's up here. It's a copy of what's in heaven. So what about the priests? What are they a copy and a shadow of? What is Aaron? What are the Levites? What is the high priest a copy and shadow of, of what's in heaven? They're a copy and a shadow of the heavenly high priest who's seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty on high. Do you see how he's showing them? He says, brothers and sisters, this is a copy of what's up here. So look to what's up here. And you want to go, they want to go back to these priests. They want to go back to these sacrifices, back to the high priest. But he says, look, if this is a copy of what's up here, then so is the priest a copy of Christ who is up reigning in the heavenly places. Do you want the copy or do you want the real thing? Do you want the shadow or do you want the real thing? I mean, if I offered you a photocopy of an autographed Michael Jordan jersey or the actual jersey, oh, I want the copy. I can fold it up and put it in my pocket, show my buddies. Like, no, man, slap him. No, you want the real thing. No one would prefer the copy. I mean, think about why do people spend a lot of money, so have we, to go to Disney World? When you can buy a little model replica of Cinderella's castle at the Disney store, you can buy a plush Mickey Mouse, go get a Donald Duck if you want to go crazy. I mean, why not? 
Why spend all that money and go there when you can buy all these models and you can put them in your house? Even if you were offered a all expenses paid, lifetime visits, even ownership in Disney World or a toy model replica, which would you pick? The choice is way clear. And this is what the new covenant offers. Co-heir with Christ, forgiveness of sins, God himself, or do you want the replica? Do you want the temple, the sacrifices, the priests? Because beloved, Jesus is the real thing. The blood of lambs is a shadow of his blood. The bread of the presence is the shadow of Christ's body broken for us. The priest serving, copy of our priest, we got to trace that shadow and see our Savior and see that it's Christ over all who has, verse 6 and 7, a more excellent ministry. That Jesus stands as better over everything. He's above all others. And this, this would have made sense to them. They would have heard this and go, okay, now for us, I really doubt that anyone in this room is really tempted to go down to the synagogue that's in Bel Air in downtown. So how does this apply to us? Okay, Jesus is above the sacrificial system. system. Okay, great. What about us? I don't think any of us have a temple mindset. But here's how it really matters for us. Because we've got to see that Jesus is not a competing message in the world. He is the message. He is the good news. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father but by him. We need to learn to have a steady hand and amidst a culture that is railing against our truth. Pretty much all other religions and all their spiritualities, they rely on the muscle of self-improvement. That you, gotta, you can renovate your inner life through sacrifice or through meditation and, and whatever you can do to fix yourself. But we've got to tell the world, no, this is the message of Christ. There are no substitute saviors. There are no alternative anchors. There are no other ways. But there is this one way, Christ himself. And, and Jesus says, well, we all know to be true deep down that we are weak people. We cannot renovate our lives. We've tried. We know we can't fix ourselves. We can't overcome our sins. We can't let go of grudges. We can't save ourselves. This is why Jesus says, come to me, all who are tired and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Be connected to me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus offers this to every weary sinner. He doesn't offer this to renovated human beings. He offers this to weary, broken sin-stained people like me and like you. And by faith and trust in him alone, by repentance, by looking to him, looking to Jesus alone, are we then brought into this new covenant, into this new agreement with God. And the reason why we need this new agreement, this new covenant with God, is because the old one's busted. The old one can't do it. And that's what he says. If you look at verse seven, if the first covenant, the old one, the one from Moses and the law, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He says, look, if it, was, if it worked, why did God say we need a new one? And this is what he goes to, that now we live in this new covenant. It's out with the old and in with the new covenant. And here's where we live. Look at verse 8. 
He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament in, in Jeremiah in chapter 31. He says, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now listen, he says this in the old covenant. He is telling old covenant people in the old covenant, we need a new covenant. So this alone, he's showing these Hebrew Christians, this shows you the old covenant was meant to go away. That's exactly what he says at the end of verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, the fact that this passage exists in the Old Testament is making the first one obsolete. What's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is on its last legs and Jesus is really pulling the plug on the old covenant. So what does this new covenant mean? What does it look like for us to live in this new covenant? Look at verse 10, this promise is glorious. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their, what? Hearts, minds, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See the new covenant, this, or you could call it as what phrases we would use, living under grace. It's amazing that God is now putting his law in our hearts and minds. When we could not obey it, we could not follow it before. But now he says, I am embedding it into the DNA of who you are. And this is really important for our day because you hear a lot of people talk about grace, 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 and it is all about God's grace. We live in God's grace, but people confuse it when they think grace doesn't mean obedience. You can see right here, grace doesn't jettison obedience to God's word. He's now, it's on our hearts. It's on our minds. So now with Jesus, we can follow God's word. And now we want to follow God's word. It's coming out of our heart that now you are turning from things that you would have never turned from before. You're repenting of things, you're stopping things, and now you're doing things you would never do before. Why? Because God has embedded his word in your heart and in your, in your mind by the Holy Spirit. Living in the new covenant, living by grace, doesn't minimize obedience, it actualizes it. This is what you've really got to see and believe. Living in grace doesn't minimize obedience. It now actualizes it. it, makes it reality. It makes it possible. So how do you know if you're in the new covenant? Do you want to obey God? Or do you still want to do your own thing? People that still want to do their own thing and call themselves a Christian, they're probably not Christians. But people that want to follow God, want to, whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, give glory to God. That's new covenant living. Living with his word embedded on our hearts. It's coming from the core of who we are now that I want to honor him. And I know there are seasons of our lives where we struggle, we go prodigal, and we repent and come back. Like his word promises that if we confess our sins, this doesn't mean we're sinless. It means that we confess them. That he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are also seasons in your life where you know, maybe, even, maybe you're in one now, where you are not feeling assurance. You're lacking assurance. Am I really saved? You could say, am I really in the new covenant? Am, am I really in grace? And I know I've had periods like that in my life too. And, and here's, I could say this is almost always the common denominator. A lack of assurance is, is almost always tethered with an abundance of disobedience. Because you are feeling and you are knowing I'm not, I know this is what the new covenant means. I know this is what following Jesus means. And there is a disconnect with me. 
so I must not be in. So what do you do? You do what every Christian does. You repent of your sin. You rely on God's mercy and grace to repent and then to turn and then to follow him. That's new covenant living. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is not a sinless life. It is a confessing life. It is a repenting life. It is a trusting Christ life. Because this is what it means to be his people. And that's what he says next. Look at the end of verse 10. I will be their God and they will be my people. So as God's people, do you want to follow God? Do you want to obey God? This is what it means to be his. This is the relational aspect that we talked about earlier of this new covenant, of this agreement, that we aren't at odds with God anymore, that he is our God and he is, we are his. And I love that it's so much in this covenant. God is saying, I will, I will, I will. I will put my law into your hearts and minds. I will be your God. I will make this. See, it's, it's not us making promises to God. It's us living in God's promises to us. And we will be his people. To have your sins forgiven means you are now God's. He gladly welcomes you in. I mean, do you, do you see God this way? Do you see him as one who puts his law and heart in your mind and who says, you will be my people. I will be with you. I will lead you. I will, follow, I will help you follow me. I will guide you. This is how we really need to see God. Do you see God as some kind of divine enforcer and kind of warden of the universe? Or do you see God as your father? Do you see him as your loving father saying to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child. And with you, I am well pleased. Is this how you see God? If you begin to see God this way, not as the one who's always looking over your shoulder, always peeking around the corner, seeing how you're screwing up, but as the one who sees you as saved, as the one that he has put in his, the, your heart, his law, his grace, his mercy. And have you received and do you believe this reality in verse 12? This is, this is the amazing truth of the new covenant. Verse 12 for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, towards their wrongdoing, towards their sins. And I will remember their sins no more. This is the greatness of Christianity, of the new covenant life, is that he will remember our sins no more. You know, there are a lot of people that teach what Christianity is, and they really mess it up when it becomes this. The greatness of, of Christ is what you could get in this life, and what you could accomplish, and what you could become, and you seeing your dreams happen. That is all garbage. The greatness of the Christian life is the great mercy of God that we have received. It is the greatness of God's loving kindness toward us. That all of our wrongdoing, that all of our sins, we've all been now in Christ redefined by the mercy of God. You've been redefined by God's mercy. Satan wants you to think you are still defined by your sins. You are not. If you are in Christ, you are redefined. You are renovated by the mercy of God. It's only in the gospel of grace can this happen. Only in the new covenant, through crucifixion with Christ, through us being raised with Christ, do you get overhauled. And now you're made new by the mercy of God. And God offers this agreement, this of being merciful towards our sins, by putting our sins on 
Christ, on Jesus, on the Son. And now all of God's justice, all of his wrath goes on his Son. This is what happens on the cross. He's merciful toward us because of what Jesus did. That that one day, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. The rising, he justified. And now I'm declared not righteous. I'm declared righteous, not guilty, by the mercy of God. Do you believe that? Have you received it? Why not? And now... As a Christian, do you see that all of God's dealings with you are merciful? Because verse 12, he could have just ended with, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, period. That's not how he ended. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is an amazing reality with God that we struggle to believe and we must. That God is not holding a grudge against you. He does not remember your sins anymore. And it's not that God's memory all of a sudden got bad. He is choosing. I will not remember this. That's not how we operate. We don't go, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to decide to forget that. No, we're like, oh man, I forgot. God says, I will not remember your sins anymore. This is God's heart on full display for you. He, he says this to show you, look at how kind I am. Look at, how, how, look at how much I love you, that when I see you, I don't remember what you did in high school. That when I see you, when I think of Jeff Metters, I don't remember what he did in college. When, when I see you, when I think of you, I, I don't remember what you did at that bar, what you did in your first marriage. I, I don't remember those things. I don't remember your sins anymore. You must believe in God's loving kindness towards you. In the Christian church, we must, we must do this for each other. Because it's really easy for us to sit here and go, yes, God doesn't remember our sins anymore, but I'm going to remember yours. I remember how you were jerked the first time we met. I remember what you said to me, and you thought you were just like friends, kidding around. And we, we, we hold grudges, and we, we withhold forgiveness, and we don't really forget and forgive. This doesn't mean we don't rebuke each other or we, we don't correct each other when we're out of line with God's word. Of course we do. But it means when people confess and when people repent, we don't remember. It's like it never happened. That means we don't define each other by our sins. We don't remember people as adulterers. We don't remember people as alcoholics and as addicts and as materialistic people and as gluttons. We just remember they're in Christ. Because if God has chosen to forget their sin, why should I remember it? You know how we like to remember people's sins? It's because we like to think we have a little leverage on people. And really what we're doing when we, when we remember people's sins is that we're actually thinking and saying the cross of Christ was not enough to forgive this. The wrath that Jesus took was not enough. I need to put on a little bit of my own. Oh, yeah, you can go to God for mercy. You're not getting any from me. We become more like the serpent. But we must remember that God has been merciful towards our sins. And so we must be merciful towards one another. And that God says, I will not remember your sins anymore. And so we must say to one another, I will not remember this. That's real forgiveness. That's real life. That's real Christianity. 
That's really living in the new covenant. So pay attention to your life. Don't just mosey about your week. Oh, how did I get here on Sunday? Pay attention to life in the new covenant, to your surroundings, to your covenantal life with God. He is merciful. He does not remember our sins. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.